0: Welcome to Real Jam Radio, I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and happy to have you with us this week. This ends up being a little bit of a different episode, uh, through a series of cancellations, it's only going to be a one-guest episode, and it's a little bit shorter than usual because of that, because of how it was allocated, but I'm very happy with the conversation. The guest is Amin Vafa, he's the co-editor-in-chief of Hardwood Paroxysm and the associate editor of Bullets Forever, which is an SB Nation blog, and we talked primarily about the Wizards, it was on the occasion of them jumping over 500 for the first time since 2009, which they have since fallen back under by losing to the Spurs on Wednesday, but I wanted to talk with him about that he and I knew each other, I actually covered the Wizards for the second half of last year, and it was good to get his perspective on that, and through sheer happenstance, his team from growing up as the Cleveland Cavaliers, so we talked Cavs for a little while, and prophetically he mentioned in that, because we recorded it on Tuesday, that he thought they hadn't hit rock bottom, and I don't know whether Wednesday's game against the Lakers will be rock bottom eventually, but either way, he sounds like a genius because he got that exactly right, and we'll have to see if that actually turns out to be the low point of the season or if somehow it can get worse. So our conversation runs about 35 minutes, hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Jumin, for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited that the timing on this worked out pretty well because the Wizards just went over 500 for the first time in a while. I
1: know. Oh, my God. Yeah, you got me before the next game, too, where they could go back to 500.
0: <laughs> so this is the first time since 2009, correct?
1: Yeah, 2009 when they were 2-1. and one, That was the last time they were over 500, and then they've been under 500 since, which is also crazy because it means they haven't, Won an opening game in five years,
0: yeah, six something years. like that. God,
1: that's crazy.
0: And also, this is the first time in John Wall's career, correct?
1: Yes, it is the first time in John Wall's career.
0: I'm trying just... to think of other than rookies because rookies have historically at some points made the All Star game. A guy who's made the All Star game before his team was ever over 500. Kyrie. <laughs> Kyrie probably Kyrie probably did. Yeah, I mean, I I could look it up, but that seems yeah. possible. Yeah. I'd... But.
1: Yeah, just high-profile guys coming out of college who play for terrible teams, things
0: like that. Yeah. Yeah. If Anthony Davis makes it, he might have a chance. That's I don't true. know how their beginning of the seasons are. So this team is definitely, however you want to quantify it, doing better this year than they have previously. What do you attribute that success to? I'd say
1: a couple things. Defense, definitely. I mean, their defense this year started off a little worse than it did last year, but they're already back to top 10 defensive team in the league, and I think that really helps them. Once they can get going on the defensive end of the floor, they play really well, and it kind of gets them motivated to play on the, on the offensive end. And bringing Gortat in, I, I think he's a little bit of a worse defensive presence than Mecca Okafor was last year, but he can actually you know score, which is helpful. And John Wall now can actually hit jump shots, which is just kind of insane because of how atrocious. He's been at them for the rest of his career, and he's kind of respectable this year. It's great.
0: What's been weird about the Wizards in that sense is that they're kind of playing against an abstract because last year their defense was remarkable when they had Oak Four and they had their full core of guys together, Mm -hmm. but... That wasn't possible this year because Okafor was out. He's still out. It sounds like he's going to be out a while.
1: Right. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it's just crazy how, like, I mean, they had nothing going offensively at the without Wall last year, and they were able to finally really identify themselves as a strong defensive team. And then when Gortat came in, it, it, you saw that kind of go away, but... Over the past month or so, they've really, I think it was, they jumped from 18th in defensive efficiency to ninth in defensive efficiency over the past four weeks per NBA.com.
0: That sounds right, yeah. Yeah,
1: no, it's pretty pretty impressive. I mean, they just, it just feels like they've concentrated more, which seems (laughs) bizarre, but I think they're just clicking more now that gortot has been on the team for, he's such an integral part of the starting five, obviously, and they've really integrated him and they have a real flow going and they're just more comfortable with each other.
0: And the unusual component of the Gortat trade is that he's been with them the full season, but he came with them right before the start of the season. So when you talk about adjustments, they had to do that on the fly. They couldn't really do that with planning. Right. So, yeah, he
1: didn't he didn't actually start the first game. But then, you know, obviously he's been the starting center for this season. So, I mean, he's done a great job, but I think they've done a great job of getting him in the system. Washington's at-rim defense was pretty poor for most of the year, but even Gortat's defense has improved. And I think that shows how much they're really concentrating on that end of the floor it's been kind of impressive, frankly. I'm almost proud of them, like a, like a proud papa. How
0: have you thought about what Beal has done so far this year?
1: I really love watching Beal. I mean, he's been up and down. Like, he'll have a 30-point game <laughs> one day, and he'll have a 7-point game another day, and it's just been kind of crazy to watch. But he has basically the rough talent to kind of do everything in a weird way. Like, he's quick, he can handle the ball, he can score at the basket, he can shoot jumpers, he can shoot mid-range, he can shoot... Threes. he's a pretty good defensively and he's weirdly confident and doing you know post-game interviews and stuff he has a very like mature presence for when he's like 20 <laughs> like he's really young and he's has like a good head on his shoulders kind of thing he just he comes up older than he actually is it's pretty impressive and i think that kind of maturity has lent him to be able to play a lot smarter this year
0: And on that note, it was interesting. There were a series of pieces when the Wizards came to Oakland to play the Warriors about comparing Clay with Beal. And one point that I thought a lot of the Warrior-centric ones missed is that right now, Bradley Beal is younger than Clay Thompson was when he played his first NBA game. And obviously, he's much older than that now. And so you talk about him having a good head on his shoulders and everything like that, and that's all true. And I saw a lot of that last year and saw it when I, I went in their locker room after the Warriors game. And that he's that way and has that kind of motor, if you want to call it, on and off the court at such a young age is a very encouraging thing in terms of his long-term development.
1: Right. And I think Clay would be a good comparison for him, too, in that respect, even though he's a little bit older. And I think a lot of the you know, kind of young two guards in the league, it's a smart class, I guess. It's like a smart cohort of guys, yep. and I think that we're going to see some promising things over the next couple of years from them. It's going to be pretty exciting to watch.
0: Where do you see Beale's defensive potential? Is he, <laughs> right, does, can he, do you think he can become maybe not a stopper, but a really high quality guy? And do you think he can defend ones at all?
1: Absolutely. I think so. I mean, he's, I think he's about six, five. He's already, he's not super long, but he's has a really kind of strong build. I think this year he's been, I'm not going to call him out for reserving his energy or anything, but like he had that injury scare at the beginning of the season where he had like the, the stress injury and just kind of, making sure he's not playing it safe a little bit. He just got up a minutes restriction this week, and I think once he really fully gets 100% healthy, and I think he's, I think he thinks he's 100% healthy, but it's just like taking doctor's precautions and things, I think he's going to be able to pretty much do anything. He's going to be able to guard ones and twos really well, and small threes, but not probably that well. But he's quick, and he's big, and can trap and can people pretty well.
0: So then to me, the big question then regarding that is, do you think that three years from now we'll be talking about the Wizards as having the best backcourt in the league?
1: I think it'll be pretty damn close. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, I have no idea what the state of the league is going to be in the next couple of years, but as things are going, Wall and Beal have a, a great chemistry on the court and off the court. Wall obviously is the ball handler of the team, but Beal has been able to do that a little bit, and he can create for himself and others. And I think the two of them pairing together growing together on the team. Washington's not going to trade either of them anytime soon, I don't think. And, you know, there's other backcourt pairings in the league that have similar promise, but they're really (laughs) exciting to watch, and they're better defenders, you know, than most of other young backcourt pairings, I think.
0: The other remarkable thing to me about this Wizards team, and you retweeted something from Jacob Rosen today, that Gortat or Reason Wall, when they've played together, have been really remarkably good on this team. And when I was seeing the numbers, I was just shocked by it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Trevor Ariza is really, really good and (laughs) really underrated. He's one of those guys that over the the course of his career has been obviously has played well on on the teams he's been on, but people are always worried about his contract and like him playing up to his ability with contract or whatever. But people have talked about Wizards trades this season and Ariza. I mean, after the Gortat trade at the beginning of the season, people have talked about basically Ariza being the biggest trade chip on the team. But if he were to get traded, the team would get demonstrably worse. His defensive and offensive production would would be sorely missed on the team. He is by far the best one-on-one defender on the team. He's really good from corner three. He dribbles a little too much, but (laughs) based on everything else he's able to do and capable of doing on the team, he has just been great to watch all season. And he plays really well off-wall, and Gortat kind of anchoring the center and Gortat's offensive game being as good as it is, especially compared to the bigs last year. The three of them on the court together, I'm not surprised that they're ranked so highly
0: And the other factor with Ariza that's kind of dogged him at certain points in his career is that he's better offensively as a complementary player than he is as a primary. And he was poorly cast on that Houston team earlier in his career after he had the huge success with the Lakers on the part of the title team. He did that, and I think he's finally gotten back to the role that he was always supposed to play, and that's being a key defensive piece and being a... Support offensive piece.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think when he went to the Rockets after that, he was on the Lakers title team. He was, as you said, miscast in that role. He was weirdly built, tried to tie him into a system where he didn't really fit too well. And then when he got traded to New Orleans, it was kind of an awkward fit as well. So when he's been in Washington, they, last year he was a six man and he played really well off the bench as a six man as kind of a scoring guy and had really strong defensive presence. Washington talked a lot last year about how because of him and Martel Webster playing pretty much the same minutes load, they talked about the two of them the Washington actually having a six man starting lineup because of how the Webster and Ariza were so crucial to like the success of the the other four guys on the in the starting lineup. And this year with Ariza starting, you just have that defensive presence from the get go of the game and you have him as a complimentary player. And with Webster and Areza both being real threats from outside. You have them being complimentary pieces to guys like Wallen and Ney and who can actually distribute the ball really well.
0: And to give a little background for the people who are less familiar with the situation, the, the stats that came out today is that Gortada Reason, while played about 50% of the Wizards' minutes together, and in those it's 48.3%, they've outscored opponents by 8.7 points per 48 minutes, which is remarkable considering that the team as a whole is pretty much flat. Right. So it shows you just how good th- those guys together have been, and that doesn't even include Beal or any of the other stuff that they can do.
1: Right, and that's how good they are and, and how, how much of a drop-off there is really to the bench as well, too. Kind of sad at times. I mean, other than Kevin Seraphim playing really well last month.
0: In a lot of ways, that's the strangest thing about this Wizards team, is that they have this combination of guys that seem like they're turning out really well in terms of Wall and Beal, and then they've guys that they've added through trades like Nene. And then you have this kind of swath of draft bust. That are on the fringes of everything, and then Seraphin's. I think doing better than those guys, but it's such a strange collection of talent.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I mean, it's been really kind of weird to watch. I think Washington's been criticized for having like just a, a really short rotation. Like it's basically eight guys with real contributions. You have the five starters. You have uh, Webster. Trevor Booker and Garrett Temple basically coming off the bench. And that's it. I mean, you have a ton of other guys who've been told be ready on a moment's notice, but you spent this money in the off season to bring in Eric Maynard to rest John Wall and Eric Maynard, was not able to get the job done <laughs> at all, which is regrettable because, I mean, a lot of people were like, oh, I knew Maynard was going to be like that. But a lot of people in, in D.C. and a lot of you know, other people wanted to see a little bit of promise in him just because they wanted to limit Wall's minutes, if, if nothing else, just because you didn't want to see him get injured again.
0: And that's also the hard thing about having a local kid. Wall, Maynard went to VCU, mm-hmm. which is pretty close nearby. And I always have trouble with it when local guys don't always pan out. Not that I'm writing him off necessarily this early, but he's had a rough go of it so far.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it may, It it is a bummer for for him, too. Like, I wanted him to play well. Like, there's no, like, (laughs) benefit for anyone, really, if he's not playing well. He was brought in to run the second unit, and the second unit was really bad at the beginning of the season, and part of that was him and his kind of inability to get the offense going. I mean, the idea was that he was supposed to – Wall was supposed to have a quicker pace than he was. Maynard was going to bring in, slow down the second unit, like run things in the half court, but then that didn't really happen, and a lot of it just wound up being Maynard taking – really poorly thought out shots that you know, with plenty of time left on the shot clock. And then you had plenty of other guys who really couldn't get the offense going off the bench and there was a little bit of tinkering done and then it wound up basically Wall or Beal or Nene has to be on the floor with the bench unit because they have to have somebody who can actually pass.
0: They really do, and the, just the amazing thing about watching them is you do see flashes every once in a while from Jan Vesely reminding people of why he was drafted in the top ten. But it's such a strange situation because they're so few and far between.
1: Right. Washington's been, like you said, these draft busts. I mean, whether they're bust or whether they haven't Vesely and Singleton have been kind of cursed by not being able to have a real offseason because of the lockout, a real rookie offseason. These guys haven't been able to get ingrained in the team chemistry and team culture or anything. And I mean, Vesely and Singleton have been around for a while, obviously, but their skills are so limited at this point because of their development that if they can do one thing well, they're, they become a liability in other ways. Vesely... Has, is a high-energy player, and he's good in certain f- instances. He's He can break up passes really well. He can tap out offensive rebounds. And if there's a fast break, he can most of the time finish the rim for a dunk. But, you know, God forbid you follow him. <laughs> and he is, like, the worst free-throw shooter in NBA history. Like, And he has, has such a mental block about it that he can't actually make free-throws anymore. Chris Singleton has had really, really few minutes this year after being, you know, ACC Defensive Player of the Year before his rookie season. Like, they brought him in to be a defensive presence on the team, and he was a starting small forward his rookie season has played pretty poorly and sparingly since I think they kind of wanted to turn him into a stretch four type over the past couple of seasons that hasn't really worked out and then right the night before the Gorton trade they turned down the qualifying offers for both Singleton and Vesely and they're both going to be three agents this summer and then not to mention Otto Porter who has played really sparingly and he's a hometown guy too technically since he went to Georgetown but he was injured to start the season and he's been slow to get started and it's kind of a shame because people really thought he was going to get sucked into the core of the team.
0: And the really kind of crazy dynamic with this Wizards team is I think a lot of people expected that Ariza would, you know, he'd do fine in his role and then his contract would expire and he'd do whatever's next because they already have Webster signed and they drafted Otto Porter. Mm-hmm. But Ariza's played so well that they're in this really sticky spot because, as you said, within the year, that losing Ariza would make them meaningfully worse. I think, at least in the short term, that's true for next year mm-hmm. as well. And so you're in this weird situation because they have multi-year commitments to Porter and Webster, Right. and they have no commitment to Ariza, but it might be best for both sides if he stayed for another couple of years.
1: Right, and, that's, and it just becomes such a tough situation because – if Porter winds up becoming a trade chip or something, you lose his ceiling. You lose what he could be because right now he's nothing. You would wind up selling low, but then some other team would come along and turn him into a really serviceable small forward, you know, once he puts an extra like 50 pounds on because his legs are really, really skinny and I think he needs to work out on that. But he's a rookie. He, he'll get there. But with, like you said, Marcel Webster has had a little bit of an up and down season. He hasn't been terrible, but you know he's not scoring like crazy like he was last season. For this team, he could definitely start a small forward. He's quick. And he's big, so like you, you could put him on bigger threes in the league. Like I think he's 6'9", like 250 or so. He's a pretty big dude. But you could theoretically, if, if Porter had a really good summer league and a really good offseason, a really good training camp and everything, you could theoretically replicate Elise's, Ariza's production if he were to be let go. But, I mean, right now, Ariza is in the top three best players on the team. And just, like, when you give that up, if your goal is to make the playoffs, you are actually putting that at risk.
0: And focusing on the playoffs, this Wizards team, it seems to me that the top five or so in the East is pretty well settled, with the top two being who everybody knows. Where do you see Washington settling in, or if they do settle in, in that top five? I don't know.
1: I mean, Washington is kind of like leveled up over the, every month of the season. They've got a little, like they've changed a little bit and gotten a little bit better the beginning of the season. They were floundering defensively, not really scoring, and you saw a Wall carrying a lot of the load. And then they started picking up the defense, picking up a little bit of scoring, figuring out their bench situation, but then they would lead at the half because they were picking up the pace. And then they would let big leads go at halftime and wind up losing. And now they've kind of figured out how to like move all the pieces together. So if Washington can kind of sustain the momentum that it's been building over this stretch where they've gotten over 500 finally, realizing that, you know, when they beat Oklahoma City, they were on the second night of a back-to-back on the road, and then they played a tired Portland team last night. They're playing San Antonio tomorrow night. If Washington can really focus like they have been doing and carry some momentum, they could realistically, based on how all the other teams in the East are going, I mean, they really could finish as high as three seed. But they beat Miami earlier this season, but Indy's got their, you know, got their number. I don't think they would really be able to ever, if they played Indy in the playoffs, or if they played, if they play them more this year. I think they would not be able to play well against them. They could go as high as three. I don't really know if that's going to happen because all, like the Nets are picking up their pace a little bit and picking up getting a little better. But there's so many injuries and there's so much poor play happening, really. <laughs> anything's anything's open. But I think Washington is definitely going to be in the playoffs this year.
0: Which is definitely a huge step. And and is this there's this interesting set of incentives because obviously the Nets have no incentive at all to lose. They have mm-hmm. to do it. And the Wizards have put themselves in that camp by trading their pick and mm-hmm. playing well and all that. Right. And then you have this weird situation with the Raptors because the Raptors— Raptors are playing really well, and I'm sure their fan base is very happy with it, and I'm sure to a degree ownership is, but the best thing for that team would be to slow it down a little bit and do that, but I think they might be playing too well to do that, which might end up hurting the Wizards because they've been playing incredibly well recently.
1: Yeah, no, and I think they've beaten the Wizards twice this season already, too, and after the Rudy Gay trade, and they they kind of picked everything up, and Terrence Ross has been making a name for himself recently. The Raptors, I think, if they decide to keep going this route and not keep dismantling, then I think, theoretically, they could be back in the playoffs and be formidable, and I think it might just be kind of a trite thing the coaches say, but playoff experience for young guys is, you know, really important for their development because it's like a different kind of mental pressure, and I think... You know, I think the Wizards are going to be able to experience that pretty well this year. And maybe the guys on the Raptors would benefit from that as well. Like, what's the difference between them being just out of the playoffs or just inside the playoffs? They might as well be the eighth seed if they're going to drop that much farther. They're not going to be able to get in the top five by tanking from this far out, you know?
0: Yeah, I think they played well enough that they put themselves effectively out of the Wiggins Derby. And <laughs> right. I agree with you that you're in this situation when you're as high up in the conference as they are, Is not only they'd have to fall through so many teams, uh-huh. and they might as well just go for it. And as you said, the difference in draft picks, it is there, but it's not gargantuan. Right. And also, the, the bigger question is the loss in morale, as you said, of falling that far and losing the playoff experience. The NBA is well-versed in the idea of players and teams. Teams progressing over time—that you know, teams don't go to the playoffs their first time and dominate. Right, every team, and and that often happens even when individuals come together to make a better team. I remember people were shocked when the Celtics won their first year. Mm-hmm. and the Heat didn't win their first year. And so that's another thing, though, in terms of the Wizards, is that assuming they make it, and I fully expect them to now, they're it's going to be really nice for their development because their key players are just still pretty young, and even their older players, like Gortat, don't have a ton of playoff experience themselves.
1: Right, I mean, some of the some of their older players do. I mean, Gortat has a little bit from being on the Magic, Nene having some playoff experience at Denver, Ariza, obviously. But yeah, these the team is a bunch of young guys. They are used to... They had been used to winning in their previous lives, pre-NBA. And they get to NBA, and that's what happens with top picks. You wind up on bad teams, and you have to figure out how to make that team win. And luckily, they figured it out. And, you know, maybe they figured it out because the rest of the East is so weak, or they figured it out because they're clicking so well. I mean, either way, they're palpable, positive chemistry in in the locker room with the Wizards. And I think it's actually for the city and the the fans in the Verizon Center, it's actually been – a really different experience in the arena this year like fans are coming out watching a really transient city so you have a lot of away team fans in the stands and that proportion of away team fans has gotten smaller all year and i think that's a testament to how well this team has played and how much they've caught the attention again in the city and they're, you know, they're not selling it out every night but it's louder it's more animated it's friendlier people are there people are enjoying it and i think usually beneficial relationship the fans really like the team's playing better the team plays better because the fans are there
0: and D.C. is a city, having lived there for a short period of time, that seems like it embraces a team when it's worth it. You know, it's, We've seen that with the Nationals. We've seen it with the football team, whose mascot I won't name. <laughs> and they're willing to do that. And you're right that it's a city of transplants and it's a city of all of that. But there are enough people there to do that. And I think that a playoff run in particular, if people around the city start realizing, oh, this team's actually going to make the playoff, that could lead to momentum in that direction, which would then be really interesting if, let's say, they could even potentially win a playoff series.
1: Right. I grew up in, in Cleveland, and then I've lived in D.C. long enough actually to have attended a Wizards playoff game too. Actually, I think, and it was against the Cavs, and that's when I was very staunchly a Cavs fan, haven't split my allegiances yet. But when I went to the Wizards playoff game, it was – the Wizards fans were aggressive, very supportive of their team, like – not like violent or anything. But they were like – it was a really, really great crowd in the Verizon Center. When this team makes the playoffs, I'm going to say when and not if. Even if they get below 500, I'm pretty sure they're going to hit the playoffs. When this team gets to the playoffs, they're going to really, really – the fans are going to come out, and they're going to be really excited and really supportive of this team. You know, Even if the team gets swept or whatever, they're, <laughs> they're going to be supportive of them, and it's going to be really fun.
0: Do you have an opinion on whether Greg Monroe would make sense with this team long-term, whether it be coming this year or coming as a free agent?
1: On Bullets Forever earlier this season, I like mock up some fake trades, and Greg Monroe was one of my fake trade targets. And I actually think in terms of, I mean, with the free agency situation this year, so you have Ariza as a free agent, you have Singleton, free agent, Vesely, and Gortata free agent. You have a lot of money coming off the books this summer, but... Presume, I think the assumption now is that the team is going to re-sign Gortat. There's a little bit leaked earlier to to show interest. I think Mark Stein picked up something like a month or so ago on that. I think Greg Monroe would be a good fit. I think there's probably a little bit of DC bias there as well since he's a a former Hoya. But to tell you the truth, I haven't watched a ton of... Detroit basketball this year but it seems a little bit I'm pretty sure Detroit has found itself tagging itself to Drummond from here on out and I think Monroe would be a little bit redundant there and I think that he might even go before the trade deadline because they want to make sure they can get high enough value for him and I think it's a really tough decision for a restricted free agent like that this summer for Detroit because the market's going to set the value for him and Detroit's going to have to figure out whether or not they want him and I think they would much rather someone else have to make that decision than they would.
0: Yeah, and and the problem with Detroit and free agency is that let's say they have a number in their head of what they're willing to pay him. If it hits restricted free agency, unless they get lucky like the Kings did with Tyreek where they were able to leverage some small assets, they're, they could be in a situation where they lose him for nothing because right. let's say they decide he's worth $10 million, and they say if he gets more than $11, we are not going to pay it and somebody offers him 12, well, then either you're going to eat it and take the risk of, well, what are we going to do with this, or you're going to let him go and get zero for him. Right. And that's a really hard situation for any right. team.
1: Right, especially when Drummond, has coming back from injury, has been as great as he has, and how everyone is really just assuming that, well, Drummond is a better prospect than, than Monroe is, so if you're going to pick one, you should pick Drummond and use the cap space on other complementary assets for the team and not having these two skyscrapers you can't play the same time
0: so we'll, we'll do a quick little diversion into your hometown team do you have any thoughts on what the Cavs should do right now oh
1: my god uh, this is this has been it, it, it's, it's dark times on Cavs Twitter right now and in Cavs country it's been pretty ugly I have no idea what they should do I have no idea what they, the biggest thing about the Cavs right now is I have this like really like deep feeling that they have not hit rock bottom yet and that makes me really that makes me really depressed So I try not to think about it, but it seems like there's still something that's going to happen that's going to have to set something off. But, I mean, there's been tons of trade talk or whatever. There's been tons of locker room ego blow-up talk or whatever. I have no idea. There's so much going out there and all this denial of everything that's happening. I was thinking about the Dang trade today and how, you know, a couple of years ago when the Wizards did the Nene trade, they basically brought in Nene as kind of this, more than for production, they brought in, they wanted to mature big in the locker room they paid big money for his off-court presence they paid money for his locker room presence and I think Nene has really helped the team mature a lot I mean he's really no-nonsense guy I mean he smiles a bunch and he's friendly and whatever but like you know he doesn't mess around he is mature he like he doesn't swear if he hears people swearing really loudly in the locker room. He, like, sometimes chastises them for it, and it's fine, and people respect him, and they really like his presence. And I think the Cavs brought in Dang for a similar reason, except Dang's a free agent. <laughs> like, he's a free agent this summer. He has no reason to stay if this is such a volatile situation. Like, he doesn't have to – he has a reputation of being, like, a really mature guy coming out of Chicago. <laughs> he can leave if he wants to. Who cares? I don't need to deal with all these, like, brats running around trying to run the show. I can leave. It's great. I don't care.
0: And that's the hilarious dynamic that with that trade. And I wrote a little bit about this at the time, but I, I didn't think it was going to turn the way that it did. Mm. But people wrote this argument about, oh, you know, if we bring in Waldang, he might fall in love with the team, and then he'll stay. And I kind of – like when you heard the stories that were floating out around that team, mm. I I had the possibility in my head. I'm like, well, there are two po- problem reasons that he could – things that could factor in. One is that they get suckered into overpaying for him because you get leverage. Let's say they make the playoffs and then you you feel like you need to keep him. And then the second one is he could be so turned off by how terrible things are that he wouldn't want to go in a way that he couldn't have experienced if he was there if he had been on another team. Right. Kind of the idea of like, "Oh, I can fix it" versus "I know I can't fix it." Right. And that's a really fascinating dynamic, though I'm not sure it's necessarily the worst thing for them long term to skew a little bit younger for the three spot.
1: Right. I mean, they just need a three. Like that's just, They brought it all forward because they didn't have one. It's been really – and you mentioned if the Cavs make the playoffs. Could you even imagine this Cleveland team, the way it, everything's going right now, making the playoffs?
0: Other than in this East, no. But in this East, it's – especially if one or two of the teams start to trail off. Let's say the Bulls, I don't know what they could do to make it so the Tibbs couldn't coach them into the playoffs. But mm-hmm. Let's say they somehow decide that they're going to sit another three or four guys. <laughs> then, or they like they decide that, after Yokim Noah's little thing, that they decide that they're going to take disciplinary action and suspend him with pay for the rest of the year yeah. and do something like that, but, yeah, I was thinking while we've been talking, I was thinking about the interesting thing that the two teams that you're most closely connected to. Mm-hmm might have the roughest coach-GM combinations in the league right now.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing. Like, with Whitman-Grunfeld, I think people have long assumed that that's not a great tandem. But then this Chris Grant-Mike Brown comes out of the woodwork this past weekend. they just look like they don't have a... A handle on anything there's lots of criticisms that have been lobbied at Ernie Grunfeld over the years and you know I don't really need to delve into all of them and for whatever it's worth for Randy Whitman like the guys on the team seem to actually respect him and and listen to him and I don't think he's the most talented head coach in the league by any stretch but I think the fact that the players at least appreciate him being there is something but I mean based on whatever I'm hearing out of Cleveland right now like I didn't like Byron Scott in Cleveland and I don't like Mike Brown coming back. I mean, I like Mike Brown as a defensive presence, but it's nothing nothing is getting through to anyone it seems. And I wasn't one of the people who was really criticizing Chris Grant for a long time cuz I thought that he did a decent job of drafting assets but he just drafted a bunch of assets and then do anything with it now we're just sitting on assets that are depreciating in value really really quickly <laughs> and now there's nothing to do with them and now everyone it's just a tire fire the whole all all of it is just terrible cleveland makes me sad right now that team
0: well and the interesting thing I was talking about this in the press room at a warriors game recently there's this really strange dynamic that's been happening around the league, and I, and obviously owners have to sign off on trades, but that owners leave GMs in place, that it looks pretty clear that they're going to get fired, and it leads to all these really short-sighted trades. And while mm. I think Gilbert's kind of down with short-sighted trades because he's the one who originally promised this team was going to make the playoffs. <laughs> so it's on him more in some ways than it's on Grant. But I've thought for years now that at certain situations – Owners should just fire GMs in the middle of the season just to make sure they don't make that panic trade that sets the team back a couple of years. And I think the Rudy Gay trade—I obviously Toronto ended up doing okay with it a year later—but mm-hmm. some teams need to protect themselves from the person who's the most vulnerable in the team. Right. No, I mean I get
1: I get worried when that happens when it seems like a like a GM is floundering and the owners not firing them and they want to wait out the season. But at the same time, like that GM runs the. The management structure that oversees if they're, if that team's going to the draft and picking a, a pick that's going to be influential on in the team over the next couple of years, I mean, you have bad GMs in charge of picking lottery picks. And that's not, <laughs> that could be a really dangerous situation because you have a guy with one foot out the door picking a bad pick, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And you wind up sabotaging the team and the team winds up sucking for several years because you didn't take action earlier to, make sure this poor decision-maker was taken out of the equation.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's in some ways the interesting difference between Grant and Grunfeld is that I think in recent years, Grunfeld has done a pretty decent job. Obviously, they weren't very difficult decisions. Drafting John Wall number one was not very hard. Right. Drafting Bradley Beal, number three, was not very hard, though right. so you could make an argument for other things. And the Otto Porter pick, I mean, I was a firm supporter of Noel there, though I understand why, given Grunfeld's incentives, he didn't do that. Right. Because you don't want to take a guy who's going to be out for most of the year if Basically, you know you need to save your own bacon by making the playoffs.
1: Right, but then you pick a guy who was out for like the first two months of the season because of a hit
0: winner. Exactly, and yeah. who functionally might end up being out for the year right. because you have to integrate, and as we were saying with Gortat, and it's a lot different when you're integrating a rookie versus integrating mm-hmm. a guy who's been in the league for years because Gortat knows what he is and all of, all of those things are there. But, yeah, it's the it's this really interesting situation. But what's so nice with the Wizards is that they have enough quality pieces that they should be able to sustain any missteps, at least for the short term.
1: Right. Knock on wood, if this, this team seems like it can just keep moving forward as is. I mean, Washington has never been the most injury-free zone in the league. So if something happens to a big piece, then there's a problem because, as we've seen, the bench except for a couple pieces on the bench, they're not able to replicate any production of the starters. Um, I mean, like if John Wall goes down, you have Eric Maynard picking up John Wall's minutes. That's insane. (laughs) That would be a huge problem. I mean, but, you know, God forbid.
0: Can Beal run the offense in short spurts when Wall sits? Yes, he can.
1: He has. I mean, they've been experimenting with that recently. It hasn't really been. They haven't been using it as a point of emphasis for the entire season. But over the past couple weeks, you've seen Beal take up some of the ball handling duties when Wall's sitting, you had Temple last year coming in, Garrett Temple, and he was being the primary ball handler off the bench. And I guess, and when Wall was out, I think he was starting some of the games. But I think they've switched over to having Beal run the offense a little bit and having Temple play off guard. And it's it's worked really well in in short spurts. I mean, you know, Wall's not sitting for too long in the game, so it's not really that big of a deal yet. But, you know, Beal's shown that he can do it, and the plays that they run have shown that he has that skill set, and if they, and if they want to flesh it out over the next couple of seasons, I think they really could.
0: Yeah, and it, it's nice to see, because last year when I was there, the team showed these flashes of just how good they could be, and uh-huh. it's been nice to see those come together more frequently and not have that gigantic sink at the start of the season, which was really what doomed them last year.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, they started at, what, five and 20-something. I don't even remember. It was terrible. But they was terrible. Yeah. When Wall came back, they won, like, 50% of their games when Wall came back. But if you don't count the beginning of the season when Wall was out, when they won five, they've shown that they have been able to keep up the momentum of, the, of that team when Wall came back last well, year. Well,
0: I'm, I'm incredibly excited for you and the rest of the Wizards media corps that you actually have a team that's worth watching. Hopefully it continues. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time, and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks to Amin for coming on. You can read him at Hardwood Paroxysm and at Bullets Forever. Also, you can follow him on Twitter at M B A. That's A-M-I-N-N-B-A. Thanks so much to Amin for coming on. Uh, have a really good guest list for next week. Very excited about that. And also, uh, I'm going to do a special post-trade deadline special for those of you familiar with the process. The trade deadline is on a Thursday. This podcast usually comes out on a Thursday morning, and I didn't want to do a podcast that was basically going to be outdated by the time almost everybody listened to it. So I wanted to delay it, and I'm working on the guest list right now for that, but it's going to be entirely recorded between the trade deadline, which is at noon Pacific time, and the end of that night, and then it will air on – It will be released on the Friday morning, so it'll be a day later than usual, but it will be super topical, working on getting a good guest list, people who I've talked to have been very excited about doing one with such a quick turnaround, and I'm really excited about it just because it it should be a really fun deadline, there are a lot of fascinating situations from teams that are going to be buyers, and I'm not sure what they're willing to give up, to teams that could be both to teams like the Cavs, as we talked about with Amin, that might end up being sellers, but were buyers very recently. I'm publicly advocated today that I think they should seriously consider moving Waldang and there are limitations on what they can do with him because of the fact that they acquired him so close to the deadline, but they still can move him if they absolutely want to, and considering it seems pretty unlikely that they're going to make the playoffs, they might as well get something for him because... I sincerely doubt that he's going to stick around because I cannot really see the incentive unless what he's going for is money and they give him more money. So we'll get lots of deadline talk. I might even have some next week, but the post-deadline one will be really fun. Looking forward to the next couple weeks and very excited. It should be a good group. And as I always say, making this podcast better is a collaborative effort. I really appreciate all the insight that I've already gotten from listeners and That should continue, ideally for the entire length of the podcast. You can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com, and you can also hit me up on Twitter. My Twitter handle is D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I appreciate any and all input, positive, negative, all of it. My goal is to make a show that people want to come back to and that people enjoy listening to, so happy to have it. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.